If you happen to be wondering just how many meals it actually was that we ended up packing, it was 10,458. Uh, and those meals are being sent to orphanages and schools in Haiti. Uh, so that was an awesome event. Uh, thank you to everybody who volunteered with that. I'd like to welcome you to Prairie View Christian Church. We're glad you've chosen to worship here with us this morning. And I wanted to briefly discuss something that is unrelated to the sermon, uh, but I think is very, very important uh, and something that I felt I should mention uh, in light of some things that we've discussed recently on Sunday morning. On June 21st, I preached a sermon on the topic of abortion and what the Bible says about abortion and what the church has taught about abortion throughout the centuries. And we discussed that, and we had some good questions. Uh, I, I thought it was a very productive time that we had to talk about a difficult and even uncomfortable issue. But this past week, if you pay attention to news, if you pay attention to social media, uh, there was a big uproar uh, in the area of abortion. A video went viral where a senior medical director for Planned Parenthood, the United States' leading provider of abortions, uh, was recorded without her knowledge uh, discussing the process of aborting fetuses and then taking organs and selling them for the purpose of research. Now, much of the outrage has been about whether or not that's legal, whether or not the clinics that are doing this are making a profit off of the selling of these aborted fetuses and their body parts. Now, of course, that is a debate to be had, but really, the video reveals much more than that. And that's not even the beginning of the issue. It's the tip of the iceberg. In the video itself, we see this woman speaking of aborted fetuses like they are nothing more than pieces of tissue, like they're nothing more than a tumor or the equivalent of a cyst that needs to be removed. The woman talked about intentionally crushing parts of the baby to keep intact other parts of the baby, almost as if she was attempting to meet a quota for body parts. And many people, when they saw that video and they saw the way that a baby was being discussed in this video, were horrified and were shocked that this kind of discussion and this type of attitude can be seen in this day and age in the United States. And I would say those people were rightly shocked and were rightly horrified and were rightly disturbed by what we saw. The reason I mention this is because I thoroughly believe that this is so shocking and so disturbing and so horrifying that Christians and the church absolutely have a responsibility and a duty to speak up on a situation like this. We have a responsibility and a duty to not just let this news story get swept under the rug the way so many news stories often do. I also believe we have a responsibility to share the gospel with those people who are invested in things like these, the women who are getting abortions, the doctors who are providing them, the organizations that are involved. Again, I don't want to get too hyper-political. I try to be very sensitive about that on Sunday mornings, but again, I believe this was just too important for us to not mention, especially in light of what we discussed back in the month of June. So when you get home, go home and read about this situation. Watch the video for yourself, and you may be disturbed and you may be shocked, and some people would accuse me of using a shock tactic in order to get my point across, but my response to that would be, well, 
Christians should be shocked by this kind of thing, and Christians should be disturbed by this kind of thing. And just because it shocks us and disturbs us does not mean that it's a good thing to ignore it. So with that, I just wanted to get that out of the way. I thought it was too important to not mention we can get back to what we're talking about this morning, which is our series in the book of Daniel. Last week, we talked about Daniel chapter 1, and Daniel is a young man from a noble family in Jerusalem who finds himself exiled in Babylon, along with three friends and countless other Jews. Now, this is a specific punishment from God for their rebellion and their idolatry. This isn't just them being in the wrong place at the wrong time. God is punishing them by sending them to Babylon. Daniel and his three friends will undergo training and education that they might be fully assimilated to Babylonian culture. But Daniel doesn't just go along with the plan. He refuses the food. He refuses the wine provided by the king. And in spite of eating only vegetables, Daniel and his friends are sustained by God. And in fact, they look even healthier than the rest of the captives who eat the meat and drink the wine. All in all, things in chapter 1 end on a high note. Daniel and his friends stand strong in their desire to honor God. God sustains them. God gifts them. And they find favor in the eyes of all of their Babylonian superiors. Things seem to be going really well. But it's not going to stay that way forever, as we'll start to see this morning. In spite of how smoothly things have gone so far, they are still captives in a foreign land. Their faithfulness to God still makes them a minority in a culture that does not know him. So as you can imagine, things are not going to be this good forever. So with that, open your Bibles to Daniel chapter 2. If you're using one of our chair Bibles, this will be located on page 625. And if you don't own a Bible, feel free to grab one from the welcome desk before you leave this morning. But before we start reading in Daniel 2 and 3, let's pray together and then we'll get started. Father, thank you for this day. Thank you for the privilege that we have of gathering together and singing songs to honor and praise you, of taking communion and being reminded of what it is that your son did for us on the cross. Thank you that we have the privilege of reading your word and learning from it and studying it. God, thank you that we have the privilege of even speaking to you in prayer the way we are right now. Father, I pray that you would give us ears to hear, open hearts and open minds that would let your word take root in our lives this morning. God, we love you, we praise you, we thank you for your faithfulness, and we thank you for your son. We ask these things in his name. Amen. Daniel chapter 2. It all starts out with a bad dream. And this is clearly more than just King Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon having eaten too much spicy food before bed. His dreams are causing him great stress and great angst. He is losing sleep because of these repeated dreams. So, as you can imagine, Nebuchadnezzar wants to know what the dreams really mean. He calls in the best Babylonians he can find to help him discover the answer. But the magicians and the wise men and the enchanters can't help him. Nebuchadnezzar is so angry with this that he plans to kill all the wise men in town because of their incompetency 
That includes our four men, Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. When Daniel hears the king's plan, when he hears that death is knocking at the door for him and his three friends, Daniel requests an appointment with the king. But at this point, Daniel has no idea what he could possibly say to King Nebuchadnezzar. This spurs Daniel and his friends to pray. And upon their prayer, as Daniel prepares to stand before the king, God comes through with a message for Daniel to share. As you might expect, Daniel praises God for his provision, how he came through yet again during crunch time to deliver his people. Daniel says this in chapter 2, verse 21, about God. He changes times and seasons. He removes kings and sets up kings. He gives wisdom to the wise and knowledge to those who have understanding. He removes kings and he sets up kings because he's the true king. Daniel appears before Nebuchadnezzar and he says the following, the message that God gave him, starting in verse 27. No wise men, enchanters, magicians, or astrologers can show to the king the mystery that the king has asked. But there is a God in heaven who reveals mysteries. And he has made known to King Nebuchadnezzar what will be in the latter days. Daniel gives God all the credit. He then proceeds to tell Nebuchadnezzar not only what his dream was, but what his dream actually means. Nebuchadnezzar saw a large image made up of four distinct sections. Each section represents a different earthly kingdom. Each section is made of a different material. But then a large stone that only God could make comes and crushes all four sections of the image. They crumble to the ground. The message for Daniel is pretty simple. Nebuchadnezzar's kingdom will one day fall along with three kingdoms after it. None of those earthly kingdoms can compare and stand up to the kingdom of God. That truth remains today. Kings rise and kings fall. Kingdoms gain power and kingdoms crumble. And yet God's kingdom remains all along. So the question is, how will Nebuchadnezzar respond to this? After all, this isn't the most flattering interpretation that Daniel could have offered, and Nebuchadnezzar has a tendency to lose his temper. We'll look at verses 46 and 47. King Nebuchadnezzar fell upon his face and paid homage to Daniel and commanded that an offering and incense be offered up to him. The king answered and said to Daniel, Truly your God is God of gods and Lord of kings and a revealer of mysteries, for you have been able to reveal this mystery. Perhaps to Daniel's surprise, Nebuchadnezzar responds positively. He glorifies God. He rewards Daniel. He promotes Daniel's three friends upon his request. And again, just like in chapter one, things end on a high note. Thanks to God's provision, Daniel and his friends are spared from death. They find favor in the eyes of their superiors. They get promotions. And even their pagan king is glorifying God. But again, do not be mistaken. 
Things will not always be great here in Babylon. And for that, we turn to Daniel chapter 3, starting in verses 1 through 7. King Nebuchadnezzar made an image of gold whose height was 60 cubits and its breadth 6 cubits. He set it up on the plain of Dura in the province of Babylon. Then King Nebuchadnezzar sent to gather the satraps, the prefects, and the governors, the counselors, the treasurers, the justices, the magistrates, and all the officials of the provinces to come to the dedication of the image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. Then the satraps, the prefects, and the governors, the counselors, the treasurers, the justices, the magistrates, and all the officials of the provinces gathered for the dedication of the image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. And they stood before the image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. And the herald proclaimed aloud, You are commanded, O peoples, nations, and languages, that when you hear the sound of the horn, pipe, lyre, trigon, harp, bagpipe, electric guitar, didgeridoo, and every kind of music. I just wanted to see if you were paying attention. Nebuchadnezzar has a very wide range of musical taste. When you hear every kind of music, you are to fall down and worship the golden image that King Nebuchadnezzar has set up. And whoever does not fall down and worship shall immediately be cast into a burning, fiery furnace. Therefore, as soon as all the peoples heard the sound of the horn, pipe, lyre, trigon, harp, bagpipe, and every kind of music, all the peoples, nations, and languages fell down and worshipped the golden image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. Right when Nebuchadnezzar seemed to be getting it right about God. Chapter 2 ended with Nebuchadnezzar praising God, calling him the Lord of kings and the God of gods. Right when he seems to be understanding, he goes and does this. Nebuchadnezzar builds a 90-foot-tall structure and demands that people worship it. The rules are pretty clear. When the music plays, you fall down and you worship. The peoples, presumably many of them Jews, did just that. The music plays, they hit their knees, and they worship the idol. You know, Babylon is one of those places where the more things change, the more things stay the same. Last week we mentioned that Babylon was once known as Shinar. And the famous event in Shinar was Genesis chapter 11, where People rebelled against God and built a tall structure to glorify themselves. We read in Genesis 11, verses 3 and 4. And they said to one another, Come, let us make bricks and burn them thoroughly. Then they said, Come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens, and let us make a name for ourselves, lest we be dispersed over the face of the whole earth. Nebuchadnezzar may not even realize it, but in building this idol, he's just following in the footsteps of previous Babylonian residents. Let's pick up in Daniel chapter 3, starting in verse 8. We read there. Excuse me. Therefore, at that time, certain Chaldeans came forward and maliciously accused the Jews. They declared to King Nebuchadnezzar, O king, live forever. You, O king, have made a decree that every man who hears the sound of the horn, pipe, lyre, trigon, harp, bagpipe, and every kind of music shall fall down and worship the golden image. 
And whoever does not fall down and worship shall be cast into a burning, fiery furnace. There are certain Jews whom you have appointed over the affairs of the province of Babylon, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. These men, O king, pay no attention to you. They do not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. So shortly after the image is built, rumors start flying. There are three Jews who aren't following the rules. When the music plays, they don't worship. Now, who are these three Jews? None other than Daniel's three friends, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. We pick up in verse 13. Then Nebuchadnezzar, in furious rage, commanded that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego be brought. So they brought these men before the king. Nebuchadnezzar answered and said to them, Is it true, O Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that you do not serve my gods or worship the golden image that I have set up? Now, if you are ready when you hear the sound of the horn, pipe, lyre, trigon, harp, bagpipe, and every kind of music, to fall down and worship the image that I have made, well and good. But if you do not worship, you shall immediately be cast into a burning, fiery furnace. And who is the God? Who will deliver you out of my hands? Nebuchadnezzar confronts the three men to see if the rumors are true. He warns them that if these rumors are true, they have a hot date with a fiery furnace. He claims that no God can deliver them from his hands. Clearly, he has forgotten everything he learned about God's power to interpret dreams, his power to appoint kings, his power to tear down kingdoms. For Nebuchadnezzar, it went in one ear and out the other. He threatens them with the fiery furnace. Now, remember what we said about Shinar just a few minutes ago? Those rebellious people back then, well, they knew their way around a furnace too. They used one to burn the bricks to build their image, burn the bricks thoroughly. And Shinar, they used the furnace to construct the image. In Babylon, Nebuchadnezzar uses the furnace to punish those who won't worship his. Meet the new boss, same as the old boss. The three men find their feet being literally put to the flame. So the question is, what will they do? We read about that in verse 16. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego answered and said to the king, O Nebuchadnezzar, we have no need to answer you in this matter. If this be so, our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the burning, fiery furnace, and he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. But if not, be it known to you, O king, that we will not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. The three men make no concessions whatsoever. They refuse to worship the idol. And even though the furnace is threatening and intimidating, they believe that God can and will deliver them. And even if he doesn't deliver them, they make it known to King Nebuchadnezzar, we will not worship your image. 
We will not change our position. The next part of the story is exactly what you think it would be. Nebuchadnezzar is furious by these men's audacity to stand up to him. He orders that they be thrown into the fiery furnace. He wants to be a man of his word. The fire is so hot that it even kills the guards who throw them in. If Nebuchadnezzar was trying to make an example of these three men and prove his point and intimidate all the other people around, it seems like he accomplished it. Everyone knows now, worship my image or die a gruesome death. But just when it seems like the story is over, like in chapter 2, when death is knocking on the door, God comes through again. An angel saves the three men. Not a hair is singed. Their cloaks aren't burned. They don't even smell like fire. So how will Nebuchadnezzar respond to that? Look at verse 28 of chapter 3. Nebuchadnezzar answered and said, Blessed be the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who has sent his angel and delivered his servants, who trusted in him and set aside the king's command and yielded up their bodies rather than serve and worship any god except their own. Nebuchadnezzar praises God again. He secures the three men again. He promotes the three men again. You have to hope that maybe this time around, the lesson that Nebuchadnezzar learns about God, maybe this time around it will actually sink in. But for that, we'll have to wait till next week. Now, there's no doubt that this is an incredible story. It's one of the most famous stories in the Bible, and rightfully so. It's an incredible story. It's a story of these three men and their faithfulness to God. But even more than that, it's a story about God and his faithfulness to them. But even then, this isn't the end of this story in the Bible. It makes other appearances in the New Testament that we would do well to read. The first one is in 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 6 through 7. Peter writes there, In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Peter makes it clear. The genuineness of our faith is often tested through fire. Maybe for people like us, the fire isn't literal, but the suffering is just as real. Faith that survives fire, Peter says, is more precious than gold. Because that faith results in praise and honor and glory upon the return of Jesus. Look at what he says in chapter 4, verses 12 through 14. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad. When his glory is revealed. Again, Peter makes it clear. 
God's people shouldn't be shocked when fiery trials and hot furnaces accompany those who follow Jesus. Following Jesus can be filled with suffering. It can be filled with hardship. God's people may often find themselves with their feet to the flames. But in the end, those who trust in God's deliverance, the same way that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego did, those people persevere by the grace of God and rejoice in glory. But Peter's not the only one in the New Testament to talk about this story. Jesus himself alludes to it in Matthew chapter 13. In these verses, Jesus tells a parable that is very much on the theme of judgment at the end. But we read these words starting in verse 41. The Son of Man, another allusion to Daniel that we'll come to here in a couple weeks. The Son of Man will send his angels and they will gather out of his kingdom all causes of sin and all lawbreakers and throw them into the fiery furnace. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Then the righteous will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their father. He who has ears, let him hear. Jesus makes it very clear in this parable and in these verses that God's kingdom is not like earthly kingdoms. In God's kingdom, he's the one with authority over the furnace, not wicked and idolatrous men like Nebuchadnezzar. In earthly kingdoms, those who refuse to worship the idols of the day are punished. Yet in God's kingdom, it's the other way around. In earthly kingdoms, once you're thrown in, a king like Nebuchadnezzar can't save you. But in God's kingdom, the one true king can sustain you through the flames. In earthly kingdoms, faithfulness to God leads to suffering and punishment and death. But in God's kingdom, faithfulness to him leads to eternal life. So the question that we might do well to ask ourselves could be this. Whose kingdom are we a part of? Are we placing our hope in earthly kingdoms that crumble? Or in the one true kingdom that is superior to them? Are we a part of the kingdom that is crushed by the stone from God? Or are we part of the stone itself? Are you a part of the kingdom where flames are nothing more than punishment and suffering? Or are we a part of the kingdom where God sustains us through the flames for our good and for his glory? Are we a part of the kingdom where the king can't see past his own self-interest to worship God? Or are we part of the kingdom where the king is God himself? Are you a part of the kingdom that is marked by large and impressive images and idols? Or are you a part of the kingdom that is marked by a blood-stained cross? Where the king offered himself, his blood shed, his body broken, that you might be forgiven. That you might be reconciled to God. That idolatry and rebellion don't have to cast you into a fiery furnace forever. Which kingdom do we belong to? The kingdoms of this earth that will fall and crumble and die 
or do we belong to the one true kingdom of God that's marked by a cross? Let's pray. Father, we're grateful for stories like this that show your faithfulness, that show your power, things that happened in history that can inspire us and and move us to greater faithfulness and greater trust. But God, I also pray that we wouldn't just view this story as hero worship of these three men being such good and godly and righteous men, even though they were. I pray that this story would make us think more of how good and powerful and righteous you are and how faithful you are to your people. God, I pray that as we encounter flames, as we follow your son Jesus, that we would place our hope and our trust in you. That we'd be confident that you can sustain us through those fires, through those hardships, that you can deliver us through those fires and from those hardships. But God, that we could say with confidence that even if we aren't delivered in this life, that we look forward to eternity. God, I pray that we would be loyal to your kingdom. That we would place our hope in your kingdom, not kingdoms that fall and crumble and die. I pray that every single one of us could leave here this morning confident that while we might live in an earthly kingdom, the truth is that we belong to your kingdom. God, we love you. We praise you. We honor you. We ask all these things in the name of Jesus who died in our place. Amen. If you are not yet a follower of Jesus, if you don't know for sure which kingdom you're a part of, I pray that you talk to one of our elders. They'll be standing at the sides of the room. They'd be happy to answer questions, happy to pray with you, happy to talk with you, whatever it is that you might need. But I pray this morning you could leave with the utmost confidence that you are a part of God's kingdom that is superior and prevails and stands in eternity.